Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. 2020 is really the year of sense-making. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with Dr. Michelle Williams. Professor Williams, Tippie College of Business at the University of Iowa, has taught negotiations to executives, startups, MBAs, and undergraduates at leading schools of management for over 10 years. She is the co-author of the Four Capabilities Assessment. Michelle's research focuses on negotiation, leadership, sense-making, and trust, as well as women in leadership and entrepreneurship. We discuss the importance of diversity and inclusion, improving sense-making capabilities. We dig into the importance of sense-making through the lens of her latest article, The Overlooked Key to Leading Through Chaos. If you're looking at ways to improve leadership in your organization, you'll love this episode. Links to resources from Dr. Williams are in the episode description. It was an honor having Michelle on the podcast. I thank her for her time and insights. I hope you enjoy the episode. Dr. Williams, it's an absolute honor to have you here on the Iowa Idea podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. If you don't mind, uh, for me and our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Certainly, I'd be glad to. And I just wanted to start by saying I am really excited to be here on the Iowa Idea, especially because we're going to be talking a little bit later about sense making. And I think that the idea, the ability of Iowa to bring back together different ideas, make sense, and come up with a new uh, solution around bringing artists and scholars together, that's part of the sense making that I think is a tradition here in Iowa. So I, I do have to admit, I am not from Iowa originally. I was born in a small town in New York, about 40 miles north of the city, and that's where I grew up, and my parents still live there. I went to Johns Hopkins University as an, for my undergraduate degree, and that's really where I started to think about how do people solve problems, innovate, work together. So I was a psychology major, kind of psychobiology major, and one of the opportunities I had was to do um, an internship at Johns Hopkins Hospital. And during that, we got to sit in on medical teams on different rotations. So I did a rotation, for instance, in child oncology, I did a rotation in the um, emergency room. And one of the things, you know, bright eyed coming from my undergraduate, I thought, wow, now I can sit in on a medical team and I can see how teams work. So these things I've read about, now I'm going to see um, in person. So this is gonna be great. And when I sat on the team, you know, these teams had doctors with codified knowledge, nurses who saw the patient every day and saw how they were responding, different types of ancillary healthcare professionals like physical therapists um, and social workers. And I was shocked because I had really never seen so much conflict in my life. And what really struck me that I had not thought of before is that you can have a room full of people all with the same goal to cure a patient, to educate a child, to bring a product successfully to launch, and still not have everyone on the same page in terms of the day-to-day. -day. 
And so that's really uh, driven a lot of uh, my work since then, and that's why I was so interested in trust. So understanding how do you bring, what are the things that keep people apart? Um, and what are the things that bring them together to be able to collaborate successfully? And I worked in teams in healthcare, so a lot of my research is still in healthcare, um, and with teams of teachers um, in education for, for school leadership. And back then I was still using a Peter Senge's model, which has sense-making in it, so learning organizations, so really a lot about this learning and sense-making. And what I kind of came to see is that when you have education or, or healthcare, you have so many constituencies, right? In education, think about it, you have the students, you have the teachers, you have upgrade teachers, lower grade teachers, you have the school board, you have the parents. And I thought, let me go to a simpler context. Let me look at a business organization. Because at least, <laughs> at least the, there's, there seems to be fewer um, constituents. Um, of course, once I got into, I went to the University of Michigan for business school. Of course, once I got into uh, for-profit businesses, I realized there are just as many constituencies, right? You have engineering, marketing, you have your, you know, your CEO, the CFO, and also you have, you know, your customers in different uh, geographic regions, for instance. Um, but I really had the great opportunity to work um, with some folks out at Booz Allen and Hamilton and look at how do you build long-term relationships. And that's what I worked on for my dissertation. So looking at how do you, um, not just come together from all these different groups. A lot of times people look at an organization like, oh, well, you all work for Apple. Everybody here works for Google. But within the organization, there are all these different groups that have their own turfs. Turf. And so looking at how do people build trust across these boundaries and how do they reduce the threat that others may see to collaborating with them. Uh, and so that was really exciting. And after my, finishing my degree, I went off to work at um, MIT Sloan School of Management. And that's where I met Deborah Ancona. And we started working on a survey to implement the MIT for capabilities model. So looking at sense making, visioning, um, relating and inventing its leadership capabilities and how they come together and how you can assess them. Thank you. Thank that you. kind of brings me, uh, you know, I've yeah, a couple jobs since there, and I landed in Iowa. Uh, I always say I'm now at the right Big Ten um, <laughs> at, it, um, in about two, in 2017, and so I've been working there both in the management department and um, in entrepreneurship with uh, more innovation and startup games and uh, student-led companies. So it's been really exciting um, opportunity to bring kind of, now I look back, a lifetime of experience, you know, to, um, to Iowa and to the things that we can now co-create together. That's that's awesome, and thanks. And uh, a couple things too for me, kind of my my journey. A, a lot of my work was in applied communication theory and uh, team communication, and how do people construct meaning, uh, shared meaning, and uh, where does communication help that or even hinder, and it falls apart. But then. One of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you is uh, one of my early influences was Carl Weick and, and early sense making from a knowledge management perspective for me. And, and then, uh, then moving to MIT and uh, Deborah Ancona's work on sense making has, has really guided a lot of my professional practice. So would love to dig in, if you don't mind, start on the, the sense making side of things. I know you, you, you have a new article that 
that has just been released. Uh, and do you mind talking about that a little bit? Oh, sure. I'm really excited about this. This is an article with uh, Deborah Ancona and another colleague, Gisela Gerlach. And it's really exciting. It's called The Overlooked Key to Leading Through Chaos. And so it's really looking at how important sense-making is, especially when the environment is unstable and changing and we don't really know the next step. We're not just putting one foot in front of the other and following a path that someone else has laid out for us. And when I think about it in terms of Iowa, we have, um, as a lot of the other the rest of the country, we have huge job losses, right? We have high COVID rates, we have schools opening in a totally new format, we have universities opening to escalating uh, COVID rates, we have hospitals dealing with a novel virus, right? So this has been, 2020 is the year of sense making. Even if you don't like sense making or haven't done it before, you have started to do it. And so this article really talks about not only sense making, it's kind of going out, going out, talking to people, finding out um, new information, actually bringing it together, creating a new map of what the world looks like. And at every organization, I mean, even in, if you think about yourself as an individual, going from working in the office to suddenly having to work at home and work at home while you're homeschooling your kids, you have to make a whole new sense of what what does work mean and what is the identity and does it, you know, how do you actually chunk work? Does it all have to be done between nine and five? You know, I see tweets by parents saying, oh, I got up at 4.30 in the morning so I could do some of my work before my, my kids got up. Um, so at the individual level, people are sensing, I've talked to students who worked in restaurants who when the restaurants closed down said, you know, we were still doing all of our to-go stuff in the kitchen like we always had. And then somebody said, we have this whole dining room. We could make a really safe um, kind of set assembly line station for doing our to-go work, right? And so this article really talks about the idea that sense-making isn't something that just happens at the top of an organization. It's not just that you need your CEO and maybe your CFO to be able to do sense-making. If you have people at every level of your organization engaging in sense-making, looking at new ways um, to meet the challenges of the organization, your organization is, is stronger. And so that's kind of one of the key takeaways of the article is really looking at uh, all levels of the organization and the idea, we call it a hidden, um, you know, the overlook key, the sense-making, because we did a, one of our studies looked at sense-making, they asked what are leadership, what are leadership capabilities? And we asked hundreds of, um, you know, mid-level executives, people working in corporations, what are the keys? And they named a ton, only about 4% of them named sense-making. So it's something that's there, it's something they're doing, but it's something that people aren't connecting to leadership. I think this is particularly important when we look at um, uh, more diversity in leadership too, because sometimes you'll have um, people from diverse groups doing a lot of sense-making and then not being coded as leaders because people aren't connecting what they're doing to come up with these innovative ideas or look at things differently with leadership. So this is um, to say companies need to start, you know, kind of hiring and promoting based on, you know, baking uh, sense-making into their, into their bread and butter. We also kind of identified why people might not realize sense-making is so important. 
And it sense making actually leads into things we know are important. It leads into visioning. It leads into people um, having credibility. It leads into the way people invent. And so, because it's you know that first step, people often see the big big picture and you know see those big steps and not realize that that ability of sense making is what gets you there. Yeah, that that's great. And one one of the things, uh, as I was looking at the article too, that uh, has really fascinated me is when we're dealing with chaos and kind of like the counterintuitive nature of dynamic systems, right? Is that uh, tend like kind of the old model is you did have a hierarchy and it was a leader that kind of was going to tell everybody what to do. But when you're dealing in this complex space, it's almost like every every person in the network can almost be a sensor, right? To feed yes. information back and forth to quickly try to get a picture of the landscape. And I think one, one of the things that's hard for leaders to, is that it's not going to be a perfect picture, right? Sometimes we want certainty. And I think a lot of time, you know, basically industrial age kind of organizations, it was about efficiency or even mature organizations. It's like, Six Sigma was about like reducing variance, right? And they're, they're still trying to put that predictability model on a new problem. And it, it's not, and that tends to generate frustration, but that it's like one of the things I think is that hierarchy almost needs to go. Like how do you empower people right around there? And then you had mentioned also diversity so that you're getting different perspectives because if it's all the same perspective, I feel like the, it, it's, it's shared blind spots as well that you can't even, can't even process information that could be extremely valuable. But if you have more shared diversity across the board, you're able to, to process and translate more quickly. Does that seem accurate? Yes, and I think what, when you have a diverse group who's working together um, well, what you see is that not only are they bring together different information, but they're not only do they have different information pieces of information in their own mind, but when they go out to seek additional information, they might ask different questions. They might pick different groups to ask those questions to. And so they're coming back with a much richer set of data for people to look at to make those final decisions. And I think you I want to go back to something else you said that's really important is that is that not being perfect. Right, you're not when you're doing sense making, you're coming up with a set with a with a, your best guess, right? And then that next step of it is really this inventing and the and doing small tests and experiments to see to refine that model you have. And I think that that's not a way that's a way that entrepreneurs have worked a lot, uh, you know, a long time, um, but it's not the way organizations have worked, uh, has have always worked and not all parts of the organization. So we're saying now, you know, really throughout your organization, you want to have people come up with, uh, you know, go out, get information, come up with their best plan to how to move forward and then do small tests and refine that and figure out whether this is the right way to go, whether they have to throw it out and start sense making again to figure out um, a better way to move forward. Yeah, and that that ability to throw things away uh, or throw it out, I think, becomes hard. I know on the design side that I would coach my design teams to fall in love with the problem, not the solution, because that solution becomes almost ego-driven that you want to prove that your solution was right rather than, you know, how can we continually chip away at this problem? And that that's one of the, uh, I guess, the areas where I see organizations struggle as well is maybe a leader on top thinks, this is this is the solution, and it should only take this long to implement, 
right, where other people closer to the problem realize that's not quite the problem or it's more complex than it looks. And so there's a lot then, of things that have to go to make that particular solution work. Right. Um, I think you're right. I think that one of the things that um, we mentioned in the article is this idea of psychological safety but that um, comes into play that's developed by Amy Edmondson at Harvard, the idea that you have to have a team, right? And you have to have a leader where that leader is willing to hear from everyone. And they're willing to hear kind of those, the devil advocate kind of perspective on what could go wrong, what's not right, and, and being open to all of that kind of information. If people can't kind of take risks and make a mistake and, and um, say, no, I don't think that's gonna work. If you don't have a real dialogue in that development team or in that organization, it's really hard to move closer and closer to what would be the optimal path for that group. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Uh, by chance, are you familiar with the strategic doing uh, philosophy that came out of the Purdue Agile Strategy Lab? Yes, I'm I'm familiar with that. Yeah, yeah. Because a while ago, I was talking to Ed Morrison about it, and and just what you said. He said, like, you know, the um, the smallest unit of an organization is a team, and then that smallest unit of the team is the conversation. And so getting into these ideas of, of trust and inclusion is how much, you know, how can we shape that conversation? Because then those are ways that we can shape change. But I just, I found that really interesting too, that you were, how, how you have to go almost deep into these granular levels too, to change. Right? And, and then you still have all these complexities within the environment. Not only do we understand the problem externally, but internally, right? do we, do we have a culture where, where people can speak up, where they're, they're, included or invited um, how, how do we manage that that general the the sense making at, at multiple levels I think you're absolutely right that sense making is a top down you need leaders who believe in it and are going to reward that type of behavior but you need it to come bottom up too you need everyone um, to be to feel safe enough to take these types of risks because sense making is slower than just picking one solution and going with it and pretending it's working, right? So, right. Yep. <laughs> so it's taking the time to kind of really know the path forward. Yeah, and uh, I know one of the areas you uh, you research a lot is trust, and so just kind of, uh, I, I mean, I can see the strong overlap there, but I'd I'd love to hear your perspective a little bit more because that's one thing I try to coach folks is that teams move at the speed of trust. Right. And you can you can easily start to see if you're in a high trust or low trust environment just by the way a team is operating and the way they share information. But uh, can you can you say a little bit more from your research about the the value or importance of trust? Certainly, one of the things that I think is interesting is that you can see how trust would facilitate sense making. That it's easier to get all those new ideas shared and kind of people bring their mistakes to the table if they trust each other, if they're willing to rely on each other or to be vulnerable to each other. Um, but on the other hand, you you need trust to, to, you, to be able to really implement the output of sense-making. So once you decide what your map is, to be able to get people on board and to be able to move this forward as a vision, you people need to trust that you did that sense-making well, that you're not just, you know, kind of, that you're not culling the data to make it look like this is what the necessary next step is. Um, and I think that's where, that's the problem where you see, that's an issue you see when outside companies are coming in, or a consulting firm is coming in and saying, this is the, the uh, 
this is this is the new direction your company should take if there's not trust there there's no that report or that data that information gets just put in a drawer because people say yeah that right. you know that's one way but we don't we don't believe how your process and how you did that um, I want to just take a step back and I did mention that trust is kind of the willing to be vulnerable to others in a situation where they can uh, harm you but there's three keys to trust um, that are really important one is benevolence thinking that others are, are going to take care care for your protection so people aren't just you know workers feel you're not sending them to an unsafe situation right. that you're not um, that you're looking out for the best interest, for instance, um, integrity, that you have a set of principles that you're acting according to, and um, an ability that you really have the, that you have the ability to carry out what you say, whether it's the ability legally to do it or the ability um, in terms of the, of the software and different types of computer systems you have or the AI you have that you really that you're not making a promise that you can't keep just because that's not possible you know in this environment right. at this moment and those three kind of go come together what you see in a situation where you have a pandemic is that people have really been relying a lot in organizations on integrity and on ability and suddenly when there's illness and health and family of working at, involved because you're working at home, suddenly that benevolence piece becomes even more important. And I think a lot of organizations are scrambling um, to be able to uh, fortify people's abilities to act with compassion and have that piece of the trusting relationship there so that people can stay engaged um, and contribute back to the organization in the way uh, that the organization needs. Thanks. And one, one of the things that I, I, I love that you're talking about too is vulnerability. Uh, and some conversations I've had recently is, is leading me to believe that maybe vulnerability is, is like one of the mo most kind of uh, I don't know, strength-based or uh, uh, strongest things a leader can do is demonstrate vulnerability. Uh, and, and some of that even on the sense-making side is to say, I don't know, but yes. let's, fi let's find out rather than always having to have the answer. Right? But I've, I've been finding that, uh, and in reflection on, on leaders and mentors that I've worked with, is that vulnerability is works on so many levels. It makes them human. Right? Uh, but also, I feel like you, you avoid some bad decisions because you just had to look like you knew what you were doing. Uh, so, I'm, I'm, a, I'm really appreciating hearing vulnerability more and more in kind of leadership dialogue. I think you're right. Uh, Deborah and Conor and her colleagues write on this in an HBR article called The Incomplete Leader, which you're probably familiar with. Um, and in there, they talk about leaders don't have to have all the pieces. It's important to have sense-making and relating and visioning and inventing. But those, those abilities might be in different people or in different groups within your organization. And, as the, and especially in today's technologically advanced world, if the leader is not able to say, this is the piece that I'm, the, this is the piece I, you know, that I am, you know, the best you can be on, you know, on this aspect of leadership. But... There are other pieces that either I'm developing or I'm relying on you, right? Um, because it's not just about trusting your leader. It's about the leader showing trust 
in others. And that vulnerability is saying, I trust you as a team. Right, right. Yeah, and this is interesting for me, too, that it's bringing, bringing to mind um, when we're dealing with complex problems. Uh, a friend of mine, Nick Scappatici, his company, Tellart, they, they do a lot of futuristic design, and they talk about prototyping at scale. Right? Like they've done work for uh, uh, in Dubai, like the Museum of the Future. Like let's take really big concepts, let's look at them, and they, they actually prototype almost having museum museum scale installations for people to walk through and test. But one of the, one of the things that Nick believes for the future is that we we have to be able to collaborate at scale, right? and as we deal with complex problems. And so, not a, not only the other groups in our organization, like you had mentioned, like even like Apple or Google, where teams will have their own identity. Yes, their their paychecks is Google, but they're part of this team. But, but also loosely connected networks and trusted networks that are, are outside of your business for, you know, even if it's partnership in open innovation, but uh, for, for government entities uh, and public-private, the different ways that we are going to have to collaborate to solve really wicked problems. Yes. And so, yeah, I'm a huge believer in, the, in this ability to collaborate at scale and also that where for me, where it connects the dots, and I'm sorry, this is probably really ham-fisted, but for me, where I, I see the dots in your, connecting some of the dots in your work is that trust and sense-making is also that mapping of the system, right? That visual communication. Here's how we're seeing this and how people can quickly contribute, like even on a whiteboard. No, I think the problem's coming in from here. Oh, that makes sense, right? But which goes back to kind of our fidelity issue and that solution is the more time somebody spends uh, with a model and uh, raising its fidelity, right, is yeah. uh, the less likely they want to throw it away. <laughs> so if I sketch something on a post-it, I have no problem tossing it aside. Uh, but now if I've spent like a year trying to render a 3D model, I might not be so excited if somebody says that model's wrong. And so also trying to balance those elements too of vulnerability that I don't know, iterating, uh, it, they, they all seem to fit together. I just wish I had a, a cleaner, clearer way to uh, tease some of these out. And, and I think that that's a really good point. One of the things I talk about that's um, a foundation of both trust and sense-making is this idea of perspective taking seeing things how other people see them or, or just trying to see things the way the other person sees them is that step um lets people other people know that you're not like you're not going to try to take advantage of them and then if you can test that and kind of and ha and ask questions and talk about it that's where you realize one they might be concerned about you throwing out their model that they've spent so much time on, right? And then you approach that very differently than if it's on a post and they don't care. But a lot of times people approach those um, year-long models as if they were post-its. And when the person from the out, not realizing how that person's going to respond. I've seen uh, consultants lose contracts where the person, you know, the client came back and, you know, who do you think you are? Right, right we should go in a different direction and you know millions of dollars out the door um and so that piece of you know it's almost sense making about the person so understanding how do i collaborate how do i get that how do i introduce this idea in a way that they can see that i'm on their side how do we approach that from the same side yeah and i from a communication perspective a few one of the things i try to work with teams is separating people from ideas 
Uh, and it's easy to say that in the abstract, but like, you know, making sure like also how team trust that if, if, if you and I believe we have each other's backs and we're here for a greater good, uh, then we can, we can also discuss the work, right. But, uh, in, and not attack each other, right. When we have differences. And so, uh, teams I've worked on that have been high performing, we, we've basically said it's all right to beat the hell out of an idea, but not each other. Right. And so it's like, we, we do want to hold each other to higher standards and, and, and we love each other as coworkers, right? It, it, it's kind of balancing those. And so some of the things we work on the design side too is even the framing language that we would use, like uh, referring to the work, not the person. I, I, wish, I wish the work could do express this or, you know, when we have challenges or how might we, or I wish there was a way to, and being able to also regroup on what we believe the problem is, kind of almost restating if the problem is blank, I, I believe the work could do this a little bit more rather than saying, you you know, like you missed the mark, right? I think you're absolutely right. I, um, for over 10 years, I've been teaching negotiation yeah. also. So that's, I have on my website, you'll see the negotiator's yeah. way. Um, and I think that's critical that these conversations, in a sense, if you think of them, um, like a negotiation, there, there's some place where we can't solve that problem ourselves, then you get, you can use those negotiation models. Framing is going to be critical. The way I talk about this, whether it's a loss or a gain, whether it's you're at fault or whether it's, you know, let's work on this together and, and the exact language you were talking about of, I wish this project were, you know, yeah, were, yeah. were going this way, um, make a huge difference. And so I think that people, um, you know, need to think about their conversations more as um, how are they framing them? Are they framing it as a win-lose, right? Like, so if my idea wins, you know, your idea loses, that's what we want as opposed to what we're here to do is find the best idea jointly because it's us, you know, it's us against the idea. <laughs> it's us against yeah. the physical world um, that's limiting us versus, um the two of us competing. And I think it's very easy the way when I, you know, even starting with groups of executives, people tend to think of negotiation as adversarial. They tend to think of these discussions over, you know, how the project's going to be done as somebody's going to win. And the, the more ability people have to bring that around and saying, no, we're both sitting on the same side of the table. And you can even do that physically. When people are yeah. sitting on the same side of the table, they're looking at it in the same way. You know, they're looking at the same picture. One, one person isn't seeing it upside down. It doesn't, you know, that they right, feel right. like they have that equal control. All those things, you know, all those things that might be considered small things matter. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I want to... Um want to shift gears a little bit I, there's so so many things I, I i feel like i could could go on and on uh with uh, one of the things that intrigued me about some of your work and kind of feel related to uh kind of negotiation but uh one thing that really stood out for me was starting with no that that concept and i'll just i'll put my cards on the table i'm a big fan of in, improv so i'm a big yes and person so Starting with no is really intriguing to me. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Oh, certainly. So starting with no, it really came from this idea of looking at of almost, you know, you, you're doing the Iowa idea. There's also Iowa nice. 
<laughs> right? So Midwestern people say yes to everything. They're very helpful. And that idea that, you know, kind of stepping back, if you say yes, before you've thought about it, before you've negotiated, you know, before you've thought what your options are, what the options are for them, then you've closed off other things that you could be doing, right? You're, everyone's working toward, you know, valuable goals. You're trying to get your projects done. People have hobbies, they have families. And I was seeing a lot of people just overburdened because they didn't want to say no. They didn't want to, you know, and they, and this is a particular problem for women. Um, there have been studies that show that women are more likely to do a lot of non-promotable tasks, right? So they're organizing the birthday party or they're taking notes at the meeting. They're doing things that are essential to keep work done, but those jobs should be rotated among people. And so this is the idea of, Saying no doesn't really mean I'm never going to talk to you again. I hate you. Why did you ask me this? But saying no says that's a good idea, you know, in a way that's positive. That's a good idea. Let me think about it. Let me go check my schedule. That the idea of don't immediately say yes. Yeah. So, so like also reducing that kind of over committing right away as well. Right. Exactly. I see people staying up in the middle of the night to do somebody else's, you know, do a task for someone else. Right. Yeah. Um, and then the, and the biggest idea is once you give yourself time, right, then you can still solve that person's problem. You aren't necessarily the only person can solve it. Right. It's like, why me? Why now? You might find out that they asked you because you always say yes. But, you know, Sue or Joe also on your team actually have less work because of their role in the project and they could take it on a lot more e easily than you could. And so just by opening up the picture of who could solve this problem for you or how could we get it solved in a way that doesn't involve me. And I call that the negotiator's no, right? You're, it's not, not, the no isn't necessarily, I don't want to help you. The no is there might be other ways to help you or the no might be, I can help you but I can't do it tomorrow. I can do it next Thursday, right? And if you don't take the time back to actually kind of say that initial, you know, hesitate initially right, to get more right. information from you might know they don't need it till next week. And the fact that you can do it next week is perfect, but you would have stayed up tonight, you know, until three in the morning finishing it for them tomorrow because they happen to ask you, oh, could they do it tomorrow, right? Because that might be then they don't have to worry about it getting done, but that's not when they really needed it. So I think a lot of times these favors that we're doing for people or the things they're asking us to do are, um, we're taking them at face value. We're not giving ourselves the time to have that conversation with them. Um, and they're totally open with them. They'd be very happy. They don't really care if you do it or Joe does it. They don't care. They might not care at all if you do it today or if you do it next week and you don't open up the negotiation to find out. That's great. Thank you. Reminds me, I had a, a manager, kind of mentor early in my career, I remember on the consulting side that he said, it's better to appear stubborn up front than stupid at delivery. And I'm kind of <laughs> seeing a parallel because sometimes, yeah. right, you, especially early as a consultant, you'll also want to say yes, like, oh, I can do that. And you don't really investigate and you're not that intentional about really what is the need, like what are the timelines, what are the rules we'll, we'll be governing this engagement by? And sometimes you just say yes, and then you got into a world of hurt, right? Oh, and yeah. like I said, but if you can be intentional and still be on the side, it's like, uh, 
I, I don't want to say yes right away. I want to make sure that I'm understanding your need, your timing, uh, and and even being able to have conversations separate like kind of uh, outcome versus output, right? Like what yeah. what outcome are you looking for? Because sometimes people might prescribe an, uh, an output that they want, but you might have an effective way to get the outcome. But if you just say yes, uh, you've kind of missed those opportunities for kind of shared agreement. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That's it's the not having the conversation that leads to all kinds of misinterpretations and mistakes and and it can also lead to you delivering to somebody something that wasn't really what they wanted right, right. it wasn't even what they intended because you never you never really <laughs> had that com you just said yes and you you went off and you didn't have the conversation about what they really need what they're trying to accomplish i you know that early in my career i, I just tying a bunch of these themes together i had a cfo at a company ask me for a process map and the way he framed it, I thought he was asking for a very specific process model. And I spent a week on developing it, and it was very intricate. And when I presented it to him, he just shook his head and said, this isn't what I was looking for. Right? And <laughs> uh, so you also lose face with, <laughs> with somebody, too, later. Right? I gave him a deliverable that didn't seem to make sense. I felt like I wasted a week's worth of work on it. Uh, yeah, so that could be incredibly frustrating. Yeah, and I think those things happen all the time. And people, you know, kind of, people sometimes don't have the confidence to feel like everybody has the right to have a discussion around a request, right? You have the right to ask for more information, to think, to problem solve around that. It's not, it, it, people feel like, oh, I have to say yes, or uh, I won't be liked. I'll right. seem... Uh, you know, I'll seem stubborn or I'll seem aggressive or I'll, I won't seem like a team player. Um, and actually having that discussion makes you more of a team player because then you actually, it leads to the outcome that both people would value. Right. So I uh, want to dig in a little bit too. You have an exciting uh, additional hat that you're wearing now at the University of Iowa. Uh, and do you, do you mind talking about your diversity, equity and inclusion role? Yes, I'm really excited about this. So I'm a diversity, equity, inclusion faculty fellow, and I've been previously on the a diversity committee and a liaison group where the we developed a, we're working to develop um, a strategic plan around diversity. And this piece is really focused a lot on inclusion and inclusion in the classroom, and. I hadn't really thought about how much work I'd done in inclusion uh, previously before I came here. I worked on inclusion with teams of teachers and now, and I've all, and I started off telling a story about Johns Hopkins and these different roles collaborating. And I've, I continue to do that looking at age diversity and gender diversity. And I think a core around inclusion is really trust. People need to feel that you trust them and that, and they need to trust you. And how do you get that level of comfort among teams, among classrooms? And so I'm really excited about um, working around, I've, I have a couple of, of papers that look at um, not just your actions, like perspective taking that can help you build trust, looking from other people's point of view, but also building those relationships. We tend to send teams to go out and have a lunch together um, to build those personal ties. And you talked about your teams having that emotional connection with people uh, because those positive feelings allow for 
cognitive flexibility when something goes wrong. And I call these trust glitches, right? So in, when you're in a team, there are glitches and you can fall back. When you fall back on explaining it, do you end up falling back on a stereotype of that person's group? Or do you end up asking them, what, why did this happen? Why didn't you, you know, why were you immediately to the meeting? Why didn't you come with that piece? And that positive uh, affect and that allows you to have a little more calm, uh, flexibility and thinking through these interpersonal problems. And so one of the things that we're trying to do with uh, inclusion is having these, you know, one of our uh, goals at Tippy and at the university is having students leave with problem solving built. And when we're talking about inclusion, that interpersonal problem solving across all different types of groups is something we want everyone to be able to do. We want the students to be able to come here to Tippy and gain skills that then they bring into corporate America and into startups uh, to build, build teams where everyone feels valued in their contribution. And so that's uh, very exciting to me. That, that's great. And one of the things that, that I appreciate too uh, in, in general to, is being more explicit about the word inclusion. And if you don't mind, if you could, why, why that is so critical. I think that people often, um, when, I, when I look at people, everybody wants inclusion, but it kind, sometimes striving for inclusion is something, um, it's really about everyone being able to contribute their ideas, feel their contribution is valued. And a lot of times it allows us to pretend we don't see differences. And that's not what inclusion is, is about. Before you can actually have inclusion, there's a pre-step. Every single person has to go through the work of figuring out where their biases lie and where they jump to conclusions and so that they can work on that. And then, you know, and build trust with the idea that, you know, sometimes I'm gonna just think that, you know, sometimes these thoughts come into my head and I've got to stop and I've got to really explore that. So there's, there's personal work of every single person. And I think that sometimes people think that you know, we're saying people who are from a majority group or a larger group, you have to do the work, but it's not true. Every single person has places where they have assumptions. It may be that your assumptions are about people from marketing or engineering. It may be that your assumptions are about people with tattoos, right? Like everybody has these assumptions that makes it harder to have an inclusive agreement. And so I think uh, the important, one of the important things is thinking about it as this is work everybody has to do not one group or another yeah and kind of tying it back to some old mit stuff i remember a quote from jay forrester was we all use models right everybody has my and yes. uh and then i always pair that with george box's uh all models are wrong but some are useful and so also realizing yeah that our our models are representing uh, shorthand that sometimes helps us move quickly, but it also creates bias and blind spots. And then realizing that everybody around you has a different mental model. We're not all sharing the same model. I mean, it, with sense making, we're trying to get more of a collective model, but those, those individual models that we might have and, and biases. And uh, so I, I really appreciate that, like that it's, it's work for everybody to do at the team. That's, that's part of the work, right? Yeah. It's kind of the idea that some people, like you might have a team where everybody feels included, 
but you're all the teams are always changing people are always entering and leaving the team so if you're not constantly doing that work right to create that environment and to recreate the environment um it, it just doesn't hold. And there's always trust glitches, right? Your team might be sailing ahead, they're the top performers, and then you hit a roadblock, you hit a project that just isn't going well, right? Do people start scapegoating people and blaming people yep, or do yep. maintain those same relational patterns of being open and you know really listening to people? And so it is continuous work. I love I love the idea uh, the the label you have of the trust glitch and kind of these these moments of truth we're going to have because uh, it's, winning covers up a lot of stuff so when things yeah. are going well for the team <laughs> we don't but yeah if it, are we are we going to scapegoat or, or how might we deal with this uh, yeah, I think that trust people always think trust is is built because people are acting in a reliable way and they're benevolent. But I think trust is built in those glitches, right? It's how you respond when things don't go well that show how trustworthy you are and how strong that trust is. That's great. Thank you. Uh, one, one last topic I wanted to cover with you, this kind of under the, the label or bucket uh, of um, advice and mentorship. I know uh, mentorship is important to you. Was there, was there a, a particular mentor that really influenced your professional or life path? Yes, and it's uh, a person who I think influenced uh, so many people that is, you can't even name. And her name is Jane Dutton. She's a emeritus professor at the University of Michigan. And she was one of the founding members of the Positive Organizational Scholarship Center there and that movement of looking at how things like compassion and resilience um, can enable organizations to do better and make have uh, individuals within organizations have better lives. And I think that um, kind of bring your also bring your whole self to work. And so she's always been an instrument inspiration in doing that and I think right now during COVID it's even more intense because we're seeing a lot we're seeing you know in the media a lot of talk about compassion and resilience and understanding your employees and and um, having work that is meaningful to you and meaning and has a meaningful impact on others and so she's really been an inspiration in that way. That's great. And uh, in this last part, too, I also steal from the author Austin Cleon's uh, from his book, Steal Like an Artist. But he says, when we give advice, we're usually talking to our younger self. Uh, what advice might you have for for listeners that might might have been something you wished you had heard earlier in your life? Uh, so this comes from a negotiation. There's a uh, book by Linda Babcock called Ask um, Women Don't Ask. And I think my advice would be ask for it. Don't sit back and wait for people to recognize your good work or recognize that you want a more challenging assignment or record, you know, or hand you a spot on a startup company. You know, I think that there's a people have so many skills and so much to contribute and they hold themselves back because they don't want to put themselves out there. So I would say, go for it, ask for it. There's so much you can contribute to the world. That's great. Michelle, thank you so much for joining me on the IO Idea podcast. It was just an absolute pleasure to have the opportunity to talk with you about sense-making, about trust, about inclusion. This has just been fantastic for me. So I really appreciate you taking the time to share your wisdom and gifts. Thank you. This is a great, a great podcast, and I'm really excited to have been on it. 
<laughs> Thank you so much. Take care. 